there was this place with sounds of primitive bass striving for a new what should these people do they'll pass with their future until one day they came to replace the old way the fight of sound begun back then they called them trends Music they defend. Those who follow the strivers. Name them techno drivers. Techno drivers. What's up, what's up, what's up, listeners? This is DJ Blackout. It's 4.30. That uh, means that Radio Blackout has come to a close. Today's show was the Detroit Techno Edition, and we played a lot of slamming Detroit Techno 12 inches. I don't have time to go through the whole list right now, but if you go to wcbn.org, you can look up the list online. Uh, I'm going to take you out with this track by Eric Travis, Techno Drivers. And uh, there's a lot of great programming coming up in the coming hours. You have Living Writers next. This week features a pre-recorded show with uh, an author and poet uh, whose name I can't remember, but I'll probably tell you in just a couple minutes when I introduce that show. And uh, afterwards, we have um, Free Speech Radio News. We have The Closets Are For Clothes. We have Saruman Show. We have Local Music Show. And we have The Hardcore Show. So it's a great, great day of radio. But anyway, I'm out of here. Thanks for listening. Radio Blackout, WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. First of all, Rudy was a lush. I mean, uh, you know, that guy was nipping the bottle uh, no matter what happened. Rain, shine, sun, snow. It didn't matter. I mean, he was, uh, he just couldn't keep his head straight. He uh, was, uh... Mr. Mr. Claus. Yeah. The, the station, Mr. Claus. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. 
this is a jolly old happy uh, Saint Nick here, and you're listening to WCBW FM uh, in Kalamazoo. Uh, that's WCBN FM in Ann Arbor, Mr. Cloth. Yeah, that's what I said. Well, well, actually, no, it's not what you said. No, that's what I said. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. That's what I said. Oh, okay. Well, well, we can check the tapes, Mr. Claus. All right. I mean, look, it wasn't my fault, you know. I mean, uh, you wonder why his red nose was out there shining so prominently in, uh, near the North Star. I mean, you know, look, I mean, the guy, you know, he had a problem. He was a borderline case. Uh, what can you do? New York to St. Louis, Memphis, Texas, Detroit, Michigan, and the California coast. Across this great land, the voice of the blues comes your way every Saturday afternoon at 3 to 5 p.m. It's called Nothing But the Blues. And since 1975, WCBN has been the vehicle through which the true roots of the blues travels the highways, back roads, juke joints, inner city clubs, smoky rooms, and back porches of America right to your doorstep. Join me, Jerry Mack, for an excursion into the true American musical experience on Nothing But the Blues, Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m., right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. program. I'm so happy to have Dean Young here. Dean, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Thank you. I'm glad to be counted among the living. (laughs) You don't know how many people are, actually. (laughs) Well, thank goodness I still qualify for the program. it's, I, I should say that we're, we're taping this program, so right now in our, in our world, it's the 17th of September, 2009, um, and Dean is in town um, to, to read and, and also meeting with students at, at the University of Michigan, aren't, right. aren't you? Right, yeah. So you're here doing a lot of good work. <laughs> missionary work? <laughs> yeah, some <laughs> po- poem missionary work. Um, who's the savage and who's the missionary now? That's hard to figure out. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, and I also want to say thanks to Reverend Andrew for, for being here today to, to um, uh, engineer, make us sound good. And, um, well, I guess it's up to us now to say some, some things, right, Dean? I'll, I'll start with your biography, your most updated one. Okay. That's, um, that's a very exciting document. <laughs> hold on to your hats, <laughs> ladies and gents. Dean Young has published 10 books of poetry, recently Elegy on Toy Piano, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and primitive mentor. He has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, two from the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He has taught in the low-residency MFA program at Warren Wilson College and was on the permanent faculty at the Iowa Writers' Workshop until becoming the William Livingston Chair of Poetry at the University of Texas at Austin in 2008. A book on poetics, The Art of Recklessness, will be published 
in August 2010 from Greywolf Press. And Aaron was kind enough to send me um, a manuscript, you know, which is in the editing process there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that book, too, and, and maybe hear some poems from Elegy on a Toy Piano and Primitive Mentor, Skid, Strike Anywhere. Um, well, maybe we'll narrow it down more than that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right, because we do want to have some conversation, not free-form poetry, one poem into another, right? So, um, so Dean chose all the, the songs for today's program, and we, we started off with King Crimson. You bet. <laughs> Elephant Talk, great, great song. It's sort of appropriate, too, for radio. It is. I'm, I'm thinking I might try to use it for the lead song for Living Writers Always. I've been looking, you know? Not yeah. paperback writer from the Beatles, so moving yeah. on. <laughs> you got to listen to the whole song, too, because I, I, the, the lyrics are just terrific. But Adrian Ballou plays this incredible like guitar riff that sounds like a screaming elephant. And that could always end the show. Yeah. <laughs> just a little something to yeah, leave nothing, everyone. Nothing like a screaming elephant to clear the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, or that could be at the halfway point of the program. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, fill in your your backstory because um, this this short bio um, obviously doesn't say it all. Like when when you were a wee lad, did you know you wanted to be a poet, Dean Young? What what was? Well, I didn't know if I wanted to be the poet, Dean Young. I still don't know who that is, but. Uh, I just started writing poems when I when I learned how to write, and you know those two those two activities, writing and writing a poem, were were pretty much the same thing for a long time, and I I don't think that's that unusual. I think a lot of people, uh, when they're young, they write poems. What, so when you were about five years old or so, yeah. or, or so. Okay, because I know you said third graders, everyone's a natural poet until third grade, because you have that sense of wonder and it's. Yeah, and and your your uh, language facility is expanding greatly, but you still you still have a kind of uh, uh, loose and imaginative relationship to the world, and the the referential power of language doesn't seem to be. A limitation. It seems to be more of an incarnation, so that when you say things, those things happen, rather than things happen and then you have to come up with the words to describe them or, or refer to them. Which that way of thinking means that language is perpetually falling short, as opposed to the other way, which is a somewhat magical, imaginative way of thinking, means that language is always in advance. It always occurs. Uh, to some extent, reality is perpetually trying to to uh, keep up with the imagination. So I started writing poems when I could, you know, when I was learning how to write, and I just didn't stop. Most people, I think, go through some sort of maturation process or sober up or something, and they just stop. And feel shy about the poems themselves, or or just get distracted by yeah. baseball or what, what? Yeah, and you know, for boys, there's a particular kind of a socialization. Uh, it doesn't happen so much with 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 uh, girls because they. Uh, it's you know I don't it's really not my field of of expertise. <laughs> Child and, development. Yeah, not with th- Dean Young. Yeah, not that this I even afternoon. have a field of expertise, <laughs> but I know that that there are there you know what happens is socialization, and with that is you know the fear of being different, uh, uh, you know, the desire to become part of uh, an identifiable part of a group rather than uh, uh, be someone who is 
imagining the world as a you know in in a playful relationship. You're trying to find a safe place to be. And, uh, and poems aren't necessarily safe, then. No, no. I, you know, I mean, you, there's no way you can write poems without being a weirdo. There just isn't, because to some extent they are a product of of whatever individuality, whatever strange inklings one one has. If they're good, or just in just as like it's that's if it comes out, that's the way it's going to be because everyone's peculiar. Yeah, yeah, and the whole. I mean, if they're good. Uh, it's certainly, I mean, there's no real way of knowing if they're good. You certainly can't know that about your own work. You'll never know that. I mean, we, we can agree that there are poems by Yeats that are definitely good and poems by Hopkins that are definitely good and poems by Dickinson that are very, very good. But one's own work and one's contemporaries, one remains perpetually sort of unsure about. And is that because it's too much part of the, the time, you're, you're part of the time they're made, or... That, that it's something that we can't quite understand what is lasting, and those others are lasting. Well, that's, that's interesting to say, because that assumes that lasting is a quality of the good. It might uh, just be marketing. Yeah, you know, in canon formation, and certainly that has been, you know, that has been under, uh, under inspection for as long as I, you know, since I started graduate school years and years ago. You know, what, what lasts is not necessarily... Uh, you know, toxic waste lasts a long, long time. Cockroaches. So, yeah, yeah. Well, one has to admire the cockroach and the shark because they've found <laughs> something that really that's too, works. That's genetic <laughs> resilience. That's yeah. not necessarily like it's not as if we have a hundred-year-old cockroaches. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So, who are the <laughs> cockroaches and who are the sh- sharks among poets? I mean, I suppose we could say Sappho is, you know, is a cockroach, but uh, actually, no, hey, it's a terrible hey. thing to say. I know, I know. I didn't mean that to sound. I'm sure like she's that, a, yeah. was a lovely woman. Yeah. <laughs> Very glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> but one must be, you know, one must be suspicious of any form of, val- of validation that has anything to do with art, because uh, it's all within a historical context. Uh, it's all within the context of of individuals uh, and uh, various sort of cultural gusts that run through a particular time. How how do you reconcile then being the chair at the University of Texas at Austin then, Dean, like how does that fit in to the to that belief system? Which I, I genuinely think that yeah. that's what you Yeah, believe. I guess I mean I think that it's it's extremely valuable to to creative work is extremely valuable and creative work that that, that has in t- to some extent no monetary, no capitalistic value is extremely important. And I, you know, I, I, I think of myself in my job. I got this job, and and how I perform this job is primarily as a teacher, and an advocate of poetry. Not necessarily, well, not my own at all. You know, I don't really. It, it, you know, I am a practitioner the same way my students are a practitioner. So to some extent, we can share some of the same kind of dreads and strange little victories we have. Certainly, you know, I've I've achieved some kind of success in terms of, you know, all these books, and that's that's taken a, a certain you know a lot of anxiety that young writers feel, anxiety of you know uh, uh, accomplishment, and that's a real thing. The ego has to eat, but but what I you know what I, you know, and I I feel that I can talk to students about that. 
But what we concentrate on is the is the you know is writing poems and the value of poetry and the val- value of u- using your imagination and the importance of the products of the inner life. So maybe part of your vocation then also is I don't know is like part of a, a go- like a like a gu- like a protector or not just like a guard but but not a sentry but like a guard where you're actually um, responsible for because as, as you know there's some great programs in this country and I think Austin's one of them and I think Michigan is you know maybe Indeed. I'm biased and um, <laughs> but but so be it um, but but then there's there's this um, because you don't you know we're not going out and getting patrons necessarily the, the artists <laughs> of today and so but instead we have these programs or or maybe the, the Guggenheim Foundation or the NEA so maybe that's a way of Right, and well, the Guggenheim and the NEA, considering who they fund and and you know how few people they can fund, is actually a, a a minor concern. It's a real concern for for young poets and young artists in general. How are they going to get health care? How are they going to, you know, survive, pay the rent, lead lead a de- decent life? And you need money for that. Uh, but we have sort of invented, and they're primarily in universities, but they're also communities and private organizations, places where where the arts are protected and nourished and assured a certain value. And I think I think that's incredibly important culturally. I don't think workshop is a, is a kind of experience, creative writing workshop is a kind of experience that a young writer should have to survive. I don't believe in, in a kind of pedagogy which... Uh, uh, you go around the room and everybody crosses things out in a poem and then and then the, the grand poopah, the teacher, says, well, yes, there's three words in this poem that really are, are interesting out of the 27, but they're not even in the right order. I believe that workshops should be basically a, a uh, I mean, not a petting zoo, but, but a nurturing place. And my primary goal as a teacher is that when a student leaves workshop, he or she is just as excited about poetry, their own and poetry in general, hopefully more than when they walked in. Mm. Well, that seems have you so you've thought about that a lot then, Dean, because you've been at, at Iowa and and the Warren Wilson, like we said. So. Yeah, and I've I've taught for over twenty years and I was a student too and you know, as a student I had I had some good teachers and I also had the benefit of having what I felt to be very uh, very important negative examples. And this was at Indiana University, so one of the, like one of the, because the MFA programs have, have multiplied recently. Right. But, but Indiana is one of the old guard as mm-hmm. well. Okay. Yeah, I was in the first uh, class, first That's, MFA class It's in interesting Indiana. you s- said that the negative also helps, and it's, it's helped your future students too. Well, I hope so. Well, I, well, we'll take a short break, and we'll come back. Today on the program, um, today we have Dean Young on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm I'm T Hetzel, and you've got living writers. And today, um, so happy to have Dean Young here, in the in the studio, the man himself. <laughs> in the flesh. Exactly. Exactly. Thank goodness and alive. Um, and so, so Dean, you've been quoted as saying. Uh, this is probably always dangerous. You probably brace yourself. As you've been quoted as saying that um, that the process is the most Im important part of of the poem, of of the make, like the making itself, right. rather than even necessarily the product. Right. Um, so what does that? What on earth does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, I I like to think of writing as an actual activity that one. Uh, embeds oneself in that one engages in and it's in that activity that inspiration really happens I don't believe that inspiration is some sort of separate entity that just whacks you when you're going down the street and then you go and write a poem I believe that, it, that it's, it's, a, it's a process that you engage in you sit down with, I don't know, whatever you write on for me, it's a, it's a notebook with a pen and I'm I don't have anything in my mind. I have a completely empty mind. Uh, so a word will fly in or a phrase will fly in. And then I'll just sort of start scribbling and playing with that. And sometimes something begins to emerge. And when something begins to emerge, that's when I begin to feel inspired or whatever it is. That there is something that is not me uh, that I am a kind of conduit of. But even as fucking ridiculous... Oops. As even as 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 uh, uh, don't worry ridiculous as that sounds uh, uh, as mystical it is it just it has to do with uh, uh, m making marks on a page to me and those attendant ghostly sounds that those marks uh, uh, they don't actually refer to sounds they 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 embody or they direct one to. And those sounds set up a series of echoes or, or, or a series of situations that call for responses. Uh, so it's about the sounds then as well. Like when you write something, you're also able, are you saying it aloud, Dean? Or are you hearing something in your mind that... I think that's what, you know, I don't, I don't, usually, uh, I don't usually, you know, talk to myself when I write. Uh, for one thing, I'm usually in a cafe... Uh, uh, I mean, I could pretend to be on a cell phone that, the way everybody is now, but it's a sound that's that's in the head sometimes, and some some of my poems will particularly use that sound as a as a guide, basically a kind of rhyming, a rhyming both in terms of parallels of images, but also an actual sonic uh, rhyming, and others are are more concerned with a kind of sh a forward energy. A kind of connectivity that is not necessarily a logical connectivity, but a sense that, like I'm running across a, a, a creek on slippery stones, but it's a forward motion. And then, and then the idea is to get somewhere, is to to sort of feel a sense of arrival. And 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 is that necessarily a conclusion, or is it an arrival? And that just means that what you have is some material on the page, that then you. Yeah, I, I worry about the word conclusion because that 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 seems that I mean it's helpful to think of an argu a poem as an argument, but it's an argument uh, as an experience. 
it's not necessarily an argument the way we normally think of, like uh, situational logic. Or you wouldn't want to close something down. Right. You know, the, and poems, you know, the, a word that's often used with poems is, is closure. And that has been, uh, Lynn Hedginian wrote a, an essay, I think it's called uh, Against Closure. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a smart uh, uh, essay, but, but you know, and I, I think she's right about closure, but, but poems have to end. That's one of the reasons we, we like poetry, is it comes to the end. I mean, that's one of the first things we do when we look at a poem, we read a poem, we're aware that it comes to an end. It's maybe its single identifying uh, feature, the line comes to an end, the stanza comes to an end. Poems tell us that time is running out. Uh, and well, that's it, a big thing. Yeah, yeah, and nobody, w- you know, nobody would ever want to read a poem that went on forever. You know, it's just Not like even it's a nightmare. Ovid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I have no idea where I was going with that, but... <laughs> but now you're ending it. Yeah, now I'm stopping it, and sometimes <laughs> the best endings are abrupt. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and um, you, you mentioned um, that you work in, and you go to cafes. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is there something about um, the, the kinetic, the, the motion around you, or the, the dailiness of what's happening, or... That that you're there, but you're able to still be whatever aware of the the sounds and the the moment that you're starting to have descend onto the page, or yeah, yeah. There's something you know, the, both the 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 ability to be able to isolate oneself in one's head, and also the the opportunity for distraction. You know that, that there are things going, and you know I'll, I'll pick up a, a a phrase or something. Somebody will say something and. And the language will then seem like something I can use, and and that fits with your love of surrealism. How so? If, if indeed it is <laughs> surrealism that you love, I do indeed Dean. love surrealism. Yes, I do, I do. Uh, because if there's these pieces that are um, like of conversation floating by, that's in a moment where you can kind of take those and whatever pieces were floating by in your mind, add them together and see. Yeah, in uh, Nadja by, by Andre Breton, he talks about uh, signal events. And we all sort of know what signal events are, but, but we have a tendency to sort of think of signal events as being particular events which share the social values. It was a signal event uh, when the challenger blew up. But his notion is, is that signal events are much more mysterious so that and uh, subconscious yeah so that you know strange uh random meetings and things like that can become you know uh, do become of utter importance because they can bring about a, a shift in consciousness and it's so serendipity is yeah. so important yeah and it's strange though because poets I don't know, seem to be more aware of the connectedness or, 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 or see everything is connected in some ways that's one of the kind of accusations. <laughs> Yeah, that every, can be leveled at poets. Sometimes. I know everything rhymes. <laughs> well, you mentioned that, and and that's in the art of recklessness as well. There's something, and and also I can't remember the exact, but I think someone passed away, and you, and and it's in one of the poems where you say, it's that's what becomes of us is that we become, our lives become rhyme or something. Huh. Great. I know. That no. sounds interesting. Though. It is. It's in your yeah. poem, and wow. I should have written down exactly yeah. which poem it was in if I was going to bring it up. Um, well, Dean, let's hear. Um, you have new work with you today, new poems. Could uh, May we hear one? Yeah, this is it. And this one, I think this one rhymes a fair amount. 
Oh, it's one of these, uh, it's an ode, and I, I started writing odes a few years ago when I had the, I had the realization and, uh, that a poem could actually have a subject uh, and that uh, the poem could be about that subject. Why did, I wonder why, because <laughs> why, that's great, but why did you resist that for so long? Was it because that was, were you resisting it, in fact, or was it that it hadn't necessarily occurred to your work that, they, that it did, even though you're reading other people's subject poems? Yeah, I mean, there, it's, I must have resisted it in some way. I mean, every, every, uh, when you sit down and write a poem, you are already in an act of major defiance, whether, whether it's, you know, whether you've drug it up to the conscious or, or not. So I probably was resisting that notion, but the natural, this, this process or whatever it is that I developed from the very beginning when I first started writing was, was one of, of, a movement forward at all time of a you know I, I suppose you could tell sort of abandonment of the of the the tyranny of subject and that the real subject was always in front of you that you know the most important things could not be approached directly uh, but you know I just started experimenting a few years ago with you know writing a poem that was you know called ode to a hangover which was about a hangover and uh the sort of the sort of clarity and 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 possibility of that allowed for a lot of a lot of play. Um, I don't know. The poems may be boring, uh, but there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> well, there is. I can stop writing them. But <laughs> okay. Well, that's not the epiphany of the day. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dean Young, let's hear the poem. Okay. This is called Detachment Ode. The oak fell. It seemed for no reason. No heavy snow not even a breeze. The woman looks at the man she's loved for years but can't hear a word he says. Just a wasp strum at the screen, creak of a board that's walked on as he leaves. Ghost up from the basement, down from the attic, don't bother to wail, just wheeze and disappear. The sail turns to a dot on the horizon, a vanishing point vanishing into itself. Then the sky, the sea, you, me, a wash of splotch and line, abstract. Like a sneezing attack during sex, you don't know if you're coming or gone, shot into mist where Tristram forgets is old. The common near-death experience of hovering over loved ones gathered around the defunct self, poor bugs, and feeling not a twinge less than the static shock of separating socks out of the dryer. Each talk wandered off from its tick. The house you lived in forever rubble now, hardly matters how. It might have crashed down loud as a baby's cry, but that baby's old and dying now, mind nearly a perfect cloud. It's okay. Anywhere can be your home. Just open your eyes underwater. It only stings a minute. Thank you, Dean. Sure. Ode to Detachment. Now, one of these things these ode poems did is, is allowed me to make lists. Lists of, of material that, uh, that rhymed to some extent, both, both uh, in terms of sonically but also in terms of, of thematically, a list of things that concern detachment. 
and it's it's kind of fun because because you can zigzag all over the place, even though for me it seems like the poems are very sort of are, are compared to some of my other poems very sort of located and 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 can you know continuous and, and united. Yes, because I, I sometimes think of poems as, as um, like museums, where there's like it's there's one thing, and then there's these different rooms where there's different, but it, that but you're in the mu- that particular museum of that moment. Yeah, and then so that's maybe what these odes are. Your your one yeah, subject poems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, which take us everywhere still. Well, you're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Dean Young. I'm T. Hetzel, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right, we'll be right back. listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel and you've got Living Writers. Today our Living Writer is Dean Young here with a sheaf of poems, new poems. Um, Also his book, The Art of Recklessness will be coming out with Grey Wolf Press um, probably August 2010. 
that's what we're thinking now, maybe yeah. as a release date. And um, I thought it was funny in the, the, the back of that book, Dean, you said, um, and thanks to Charlie Baxter for, because he's a friend of the show, for talking you into doing the series. How did he twist your arm? Because this, this is a big deal, right? Because The Art of Recklessness is not a book of poems. It's your uh, for artistic philosophy. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much everything I thought up to that moment. It's a, it's a really sort of mixture of, of stuff. Basically, what I over the years, I had given a lot of uh, talks and written a lot of things down, given, you know, sort of mini lectures in, in my seminars. And uh, Charlie, you know, asked me, to, as, and the press asked me to do this. And first they asked me to write a book about surrealism. And I didn't have a, a whole book about surrealism in me. Uh, and furthermore, I didn't think that I had enough to say about it to justify a book. I mean, there's a lot of, of, that's already been written by, about surrealism. Well, I printed out part of the Surrealist Manifesto by André Breton to bring in. <laughs> I don't know, in case we wanted to do a dramatic reading. Go toe-to-toe with the manifesto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great document. I think it's the single most important artistic statement of the 20th century, but that's just me. Maybe, <laughs> you know what, you've just given me a great idea. Maybe we should do a dramatic reading sometime. Dean Young, are you down for that? With sure. That, with that manifesto? Okay. Yeah, there'll be a lot of shouting. <laughs> future, <Yeah. laughs> future living writers. <laughs> Even if we have to do it over the phone, Dean, with you in Austin, <laughs> you can still shout over the phone, right? Of course. I do all the time. So, uh, Charlie asked me if I wanted to do this, and I said, well, you know, I'll give it a shot, and, uh, you know, I was very difficult for the editors to work with at Grey Wolf, uh, just because I'm, I'm a difficult person by nature. Well, maybe, uh, <laughs> but kidding. I just, I just wanted this book to be the book that I would write. So it wasn't going to be a collection of essays. It wasn't going to have uh, what is a, a logical argument. It's not a, uh, it's not a piece of of uh, conventional literary criticism. I mean, there is criticism in there. Uh, but I just wanted it to be a kind of, oh, I don't know, maybe it's a tantrum, maybe it's a, a, a cheer, cheer, uh, something that, that, you know, pronounces my advocacy, uh, uh, talks about some things that I think are important, not only, uh, about poetry, but also about teaching, uh, and, uh, sort of, you know, to really present my thought about poetry about you know thinking about it and writing about it for over 20 years well my whole life really and you know when when I when I gave it to them they were they were you know they had some suggestions most of which I took but then finally it was you know they were happy with it but it's it's sort of an unidentifiable rant that that just kind of goes to the end well it definitely seems like there's joy and proclamations in it yeah and goofiness <laughs> You know, and I, I wanted it to have some humor. I didn't want it to be dry. I didn't want it to seem like, you know, that this was the, the, the sort of findings of the expert. I mean, I couldn't do that if I, if I wanted to. I don't think of myself as an expert in any way. So in a way, it's almost like one of your poems, but um, a piece block, blocks of prose instead, like those threads that you have, the different pieces. Yeah. And you have these different voices coming in because you have quotes by... Everyone, like Marianne Moore, um, Walt Stevens, like all these different... So you're giving voice to these different... As if they're walking by in the cafe where you're making this. Right, right. right. They're like shouts periodically from... <laughs> More shouting. From, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, 
And, you know, I, there actually are three poems in there, three of my poems that just sort of are, are wedged in there. But why'd you do that? Well, they were poems I felt like, I think it's three, were particularly about poetry. And it was a way of sort of, I, I don't know, keeping things kind of, kind of loose and uh, a little bit off kilter and uh, maybe a little bit unpredictable, too. So in a way, you did give Grey Wolf that book of surrealism. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, you know, surrealism in terms of if there's a kind of overarching or if, if some sort of house of thought occurs, surrealism is very, very important to it, both in terms of the, the sort of activeness of thought and making and also the centrality of the imagination. It's the book, I think, one of the things it could be is a defense of the imagination. And the imagination doesn't get talked about very much. I, you know, I, I almost never hear anybody describe a poet's work as, a, as imaginative anymore. And I talked about this little incident in the book where I mentioned that to some people. I was at Iowa, and some poets had come and, and read, and, and uh, uh, we were, you know, it was after the reading, we were having a drink. And, and I said, you know, isn't it weird uh, how nobody you know, talks about poetry being, being imaginative anymore? And one of the poets said, well, I, I don't want my thought, poems to be thought of as, as imaginative. I want them to be thought of as real. And it was like that, that, that distinction between uh, the imagination and reality, that, that you know, she was hearing imaginary and not imaginative. And I think there's, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to talk, the, talk about the imagination, and certainly as a... As a as a, a property of, of sort of evaluating a poem, uh, to say one poem is more imaginative than, than another, I realize that that could be very, very subjective and, and somewhat worthless. But I do, I do believe it's a value that we need to do our best to articulate and, and honor, because for me it's central to the whole thing. And, and it doesn't seem like the poem would, would really have a life if it didn't, if it wasn't from the imagination, it's impossible to really think that it would have a life without that imagination right. being part of it. And the imagination plays such a, an important role in how we can in in our emotional uh, health and and our how we construct the world for and everyone. Yeah. not just not just writers, not just you know artists, people who take that mantle. Right. But everyone. Yeah. And sometimes it seems like it is getting encouraged that it's squeezed out of people in some ways. Or let someone else do the imagining or the presenting of right. in, in moving images, whatever it is, right? Yeah, and I think that that has something to do with postmodernism and it also has something to do with the exhaustion of our culture. Uh, the exhaustion yeah, of our culture. There's so many, you know, there's so many remakes and so many uh, uh, things that were just, you know, on television and in the movies that are just redoing what what has has already been been done so there's a lack of of faith i think in our possibility to to actually create the new or at least come upon things in a different way well i have to say that that reading your poems makes me want to write poems and Yay. i don't always feel that way so it's they're they're good they're poems that are, m make you want to imagine your own i think that's a very high compliment thank you very much and, and I, I like how you say maybe one day everyone will get up in the morning and write a poem and i think part of that might be possible um 
and especially thinking about the art of recklessness, um, and because already on the short time we've been talking together, Dean, uh-huh. you've said play numerous times. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the, the, the g- little, little gateway to walk through where you might be able to write a poem every morning if you don't bring like this weight <laughs> yeah. of what it's supposed to yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I think it's very important to ing- engage in the process as much as possible. Because I know this is true of you know any writer. If you don't write for a while, and then you get back writing again, what you write, it, you feel you want it to be. It's obligated to be just fabulous. Uh, uh, and because you haven't written for a while, and you want something to look back at you and say you're not wasting your time, but. I, maybe it's maybe I'm saying it's easier to waste your time if you do it every day, rather than save it up. Uh, yeah, I like that idea. I do too. Let Let's hear another poem, Dean. Okay. <laughs> Unless you want to say more about it's easier to waste your time if you do it every day. Oh, I have to think about that. Oh. Um, I do believe that it, you know our culture, our, certainly our planet, would be much better if people wasted more time. Uh, Especially the Americans. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't mean <laughs> to make. I, li- I like the idea of bringing back the Sabbath and, and, and sort of without any sort of religious overtones, uh, because when I was a kid, on Sundays none of the stores were open, and you know there was just no reason to well, we get need, in your car. We need more things for the spirit, like whatever you know. Maybe we need a new language for it, so it's not weighted with um, p- people's particular religions, but. Whatever that spirit, whatever like makes this body actually alive, but yeah, we yeah. need some time for that. Yeah, and I, I guess culturally, I mean, we had one of these great traumatic moments uh, back in September 11th, uh, and it was a real opportunity for this culture to sort of rethink itself and behave for a, in a different way. And for about a week afterward, we definitely were behaving in a different way. And then, and then, because our government was controlled by guerrillas. Uh, it we went back to say okay uh, you know what we were supposed to, the first thing we were supposed to do is go out and shop and that's then what, that's how they repackaged what those feelings everybody what they were acting what, what they were they repackaged it as yeah. that right and, yeah and so you yeah. couldn't think oh maybe there should be a shift right in who we are yeah in our very notion so we were go out and shop and bomb somebody that's that was that's how we squandered that opportunity. Anyway, this is... Uh, <coughs> All this his lives. Uh, Wallace Stevens is a po- poet that keeps uh, coming into my head. And I love his poem, Rabbit, King of Ghosts. Uh, it's just... I, I just love that poem. Do you know that one? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not very good at, at, at memorizing or anything. But anyway, this is kind of a response to it, and it's called Rabbit, Plaything of Ghosts. <laughs> How are the markets today? I found out from the reflection in a subway window I am a stuffed rabbit. Is that why no one tells me anything these days? I evolved from a block of wood, and now I have a heart of sawdust. My eyes never close. Jesus made me pink, like he made Wallace Stevens woesome and bubbly as a treasure chest in an aquarium. Verily, there are sad sacks everywhere, So it's no cakewalk just keeping my fur on. Cuteness is no protection against the dissect.